0: Welcome to the podcast at D.C. hosted by The Lab at D.C. The Lab is an applied scientific team in the executive office of the mayor of the District of Columbia. We use science to learn what works for Washingtonians. I'm the interim director of The Lab, Sam Quinney. and I'm joined on this episode by Carissa Minnick.
1: Hi, I'm Carissa Minnick, a senior operations analyst at The Lab and one of the producers of the podcast at D.C.
0: And Podcast at DC listeners may have heard Carissa's voice before in both the podcast's intro and closing. You might be thinking, where's David Yoakum? Well, our dear friend David has moved on to a new position as the director of the Policy Lab at Brown University, and we're very excited for him. He is still a senior advisor to the lab at DC, and we are forever indebted to his work, not only on the podcast at DC, but throughout DC government and the development of the lab itself. I now have the pleasure and the Herculean task of filling his shoes as the host of the podcast at DC, among other things, so you'll be hearing a lot more of my voice going forward. Now for today's episode. In 2001, the district government instituted its own version of the federal government's earned income tax credit, also called the EITC. It's intended to assist low- and moderate-income working families with children. In a recent expansion of DC's credit in 2015, The district offered access to working families without children and also expanded eligibility criteria overall so that it included more families. So how does this tax credit compare to the federal assistance programs like SNAP or TANF? Does the credit do what it intends to do? How can we evaluate how well it's working? Well, to learn more about this, we're going to hear from Dr. Bradley Hardy, an associate professor of public administration and policy at American University and a non-resident senior fellow in economic studies at the Brookings Institution. He has worked with other policy experts to research EITC, labor economics, income volatility, and poverty. Bradley, welcome to the podcast at DC. So I'd be curious how you got involved in researching the EITC. Like, why did this become an area of interest for your research?
2: Yeah, yeah. So very broadly, I think I could trace it back to... Professors back at Morehouse College. That's where I went to undergrad. And I broadly cared about issues of social policy. I was an economics major, but just broadly speaking, economic conditions, neighborhood conditions, stuff like that. Why do things look the way they look back in my hometown of Durham, North Carolina, where you have the prosperity of the Research Triangle Park? alongside declining neighborhoods that didn't look like they recovered after textiles and stuff like that left the Carolinas. Then that kind of took me to public policy school. So, you know, my topical interests have always been sort of in poverty, inequality, labor markets, the social safety net, things like that. And so I can recall in my master's program at Georgetown, uh, great professor, Harry Holzer, was talking about a lot of the different social policy programs, including this thing called the Earned Income Tax Credit. And so I couldn't have forecasted back then that I was going to work on it, but I cared about the issues. You know, fast forwarding, I was working on EITC policy, thinking about this using secondary data sources, thinking about using census data and had the good fortune to meet folks like Dan Muhammad, who's an economist in DC government, and Latanya Brown Robertson, who's an economist at Bowie State here in the region. And we started talking about you know, how we could think about using some of the local tax data to answer some really important questions for the, for the metro area. So relatively narrow in some respects, but part of a broader interest in these, these
0: populations and these issues. Tell us a little bit more about how that chance meeting took place. And one of the things that the lab loves to see and loves to promote through our work or anywhere else in DC government is this collaboration between government official, I have a question, someone in the academic community that says, I can help you answer that. That's right.
2: No, I think it's a really an interesting question. And so from my vantage point, it's about trying to go out and keeping an open mind learning about different topics. And so I attend these research conferences and I think I sort of legitimately then and now would go into different rooms interested in just learning about what people are are working on, learning about their interests. And so as memory serves, I came to know Dan Muhammad and Latanya Brown-Robertson and others working on these topics through the research conference community, right? And so the conversations really were born out of thinking about The issues. And so I think I take it as sort of an example of meeting people who have a collaborative spirit, not necessarily knowing when people are going to want to collaborate, but at the same time, there's a neat chance to maybe even bring a new research question. So, you know, I was coming at this from the perspective of caring about the earned income tax credit, having done this research on Census Bureau, publicly available data sets. But then my co-author, Dan Muhammad, thinks a lot about housing and property taxation issues. And Latanya thinks a lot about issues of urban areas and neighborhoods. So actually, they were not really thinking that much at the time about the EITC. And so I said, oh, well, you know, it's really interesting. The city has this really ambitious credit that has not been investigated that much, right? So these conversations kind of germinate and good things happen.
1: I think that's a really natural segue to talk more about your research. So we've laid the groundwork about what is EITC and its sort of history at the federal level. But what's D.C.'s history with EITC?
2: Sure. So, you know, I think that, again, there's others in the city who could do as well or better at characterizing this. But, you know, my own understanding is that, The initial council-level action for the EITC began in 2000, and the credit was really enacted in 01, and it started as roughly 10% of the federal credit. And then, you know, I might get my dating a little off here. It immediately jumps to 25% of the federal credit. I think the year after, and maybe in 2006, it goes to 35% of the federal credit, And then by 2009, it rises to 40% of the federal credit. So, pretty substantial. That's the evolution. So, you know, it starts and then it's steadily increasing. And, you know, I'd say as an aside, I don't know that the city gets enough credit for how ambitious it is, an array of labor market and social policies, right? People talk a lot about minimum wage. I don't think they talk as much about EITC. You think about the Different early child universal education programs that we have here in the city, and I'd say that many people who'd love to see this on a federal level would be impressed to know what the city's doing across a lot of these different domains.
0: When you say ten percent of the federal EITC, can you say what right. you mean for that? Yeah,
2: yeah. So, so kind of elaborating on that, it's just that you know, really, you know, these states that have supplemented the federal earned income tax credit, and that schedule has existed and you know, it's been subject to its own increases over time, these states, and in the case of D.C., city states, have then pegged their own EITC programs to the federal credit. So if you were getting $100 in federal EITC, then you'd get your $40 credit in the EITC from D.C., right? So just pegging it to that federal credit makes it kind of simple on the part of the local recipient to understand what they're going to receive. And so, yeah, that's what I'm talking about.
1: How does D.C. stack up against other states in terms of the supplement?
2: My sense is that maybe there's one state that is approaching D.C.'s generosity, but if you look over the 2000s, and particularly after 2009, D.C. has the most generous supplement, absolutely, This is not at all the fault of policymakers in terms of thinking about EITC policy specifically, but D.C. workers also face some of the highest costs in the nation. So, you know, it's a good thing that they have this large credit because they're also facing high housing costs, high transportation costs, things like that.
1: So don't expect you to speak on behalf of council, but do you have a sense of why council decided to implement a supplement and increase it so steadily over the last you know, decade or so?
2: You know, it's a great question and I don't, but what I can say is that it's really encouraging that they have shown, in my opinion, an interest in investing in workers and and low-income workers at that in the city. You know, I do recall from my reading that, you know, folks like Ed Lazier and the DC Fiscal Policy Institute were among the advocates. They probably weren't the only ones, but they were among the advocates who were really pushing hard for a DC supplemental EITC. And, you know, I, I think they do a lot of great work at DCFPI. I happened to be a, an RA at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities many, many moons ago. I had more hair on my head back then. <laughs> the listeners can't see that. Uh, yeah.
0: So let's talk about your specific paper with your co-authors. So take us through the setup here. What are we trying to understand, and how are we going to go about doing
2: yeah, it? I mean, the basic idea is to try to really drill down on what the District of Columbia has constructed with respect to this supplemental DC tax credit, this earned income tax credit for DC. But then to take a look at that tax credit at the DC level, the EITC in DC. And then think about how that combines with the federal earned income tax credit. Take those two things and try to understand how our recipients faring with respect to their overall earnings, both before and after taking the EITC into account. Because, again, you've seen this discussion on a federal level. Boy, you know, it's such a big credit. You know, and some people say, well, we wish it was larger at the federal level. We've got this interesting local experiment where a jurisdiction actually did this. They actually made that investment. Well, how are people doing and how are they doing broadly on some measures that we think about right now, like overall inequality, overall earnings growth over, you know, a 14 year period. That was our motivation. And we realized no one had looked at this and we had an opportunity to maybe learn. And hopefully this is you know, useful for some other jurisdictions.
0: And how do you go about measuring that? What are you drawing on, and how are you setting it up, and what things do you need to control for?
2: Yeah, no, it's a good question, right? So part of this, Sam, is about taking a sample and dividing it up by the different types of tax filers, because we are using tax data to assess this. In particular, head of household filers. In the discussion about poverty in America, a lot of the focus has been on you know which families are having some of the greatest challenges in the labor market And with respect to poverty, these tend to be families headed by one parent. And so ahead of household filers in our data are overwhelmingly going to be single parents who are working. And so a lot of our analysis is focused on that group. And so organizing the data and building it up in such a way that we can follow that individual and see how they're doing in the labor market with respect to their earnings, their income, so on and so forth. And so the second part then is to think about regression analyses that can control for the tax filer's fixed effects, but basically looking at some of those fixed characteristics that we think we'd like to sweep out in our analysis, right? We adjust for that adjust for sort of differences over time periods. We know that the economy, even in D.C., had fluctuations over the 2000s. Can we try to control a way for that and then really get closer to understanding what the specific tax policy that this refundable credit's doing? Ultimately, we kind of triangulate around this question. We think those regression analyses go some of the way in learning. There's things that you get from the so-called administrative data that are quite rich, the ability to examine how D.C. tax filing residents are doing, you do miss some of these other demographics. So did they or did they not have education beyond high school? What occupations are they working in? What's the gender of the worker? And these are things that we know also matter, sometimes for unfortunate reasons in the labor market. We can't control for that. We can't control for race or ethnicity. But we do know a lot. And we try to use that information. And then again, you know, we pool that with some broader statistics on, you know, how does inequality at the city level, even neighborhood level, look, you know, after we account for this refundable tax credit. So, you know, a lot of the work we did meant using geocodes and thinking about, okay, wow, you know, we can look at individuals in neighborhoods east of the river and think about their challenges and opportunities, how they're looking on poverty and inequality, inequality specifically in this paper. We can think about this in wards one, two, and three, for example. We can make comparisons right, and think about that there's differences within city. And so part of what we're trying to do in the paper is also get at some of those differences as well.
1: Could you kind of define for people the difference when we're talking about poverty and inequality? Sure. Because I think those are really distinct measures.
2: Yeah, that's right. We really don't measure poverty in this iteration of the paper, but the inequality piece, just really trying to understand how citizens are doing relative to one another across the economic distribution, maybe measured by earnings, maybe measured by adjusted gross income, and then think about how this program, this pretty substantial refundable tax credit, how does that sort of change how folks are faring relative to one another? And I think this is certainly an important measure, I think that many folks are concerned throughout the country about income and earnings inequality, right?
1: And whereas poverty is sort of this fixed line that we're concerned with, right?
2: Also concerned about poverty. And they really do go hand in hand, right? That in theory, you should be able to lower poverty rates, raise incomes, and then lower inequality. You know, I'll tell you, Carissa, I like this question because it's also possible that you could lower poverty and not move the needle much on income inequality, particularly in a city where incomes are quite high at the very top, right? So it doesn't have to be the case that you... Necessarily make broad improvements on inequality. You know, I think the interesting thing about the DC EITC along with the federal EITC is that we do see an inequality reduction. And then, just as an accounting exercise, we know these households are walking around in many instances with several thousand dollars more. But it's an interesting point, though, that you could lower poverty, but you don't necessarily have to see progress on inequality.
1: And so what do we see in DC?
2: Yeah, and that's the good news. I mean, we actually do see that inequality is reduced, I'd say fairly substantially. Our initial estimates are showing something on the order of you know nearly 15% reductions in inequality using a standard measure, the 50-10 measure of inequality. So thinking about earnings at the 50th or the middle of the earnings distribution relative to the 10th, and so pretty low down the earnings distribution And once we account for EITC receipt, you know, the amount of that subsidy received, well, boy, things actually look a bit better. So I think it's encouraging.
0: So in that regard, we're seeing the person at the middle and the person at the 10 mark getting a little closer together. That's exactly right.
1: So what policy implications do you think this has for D.C., but then also more broadly throughout the country?
2: You know, I think it does have important policy implications. I think one of the things you could imagine is that other jurisdictions should be paying attention to DC's case and whether and how there's progress with this public policy. Again, I think that its status within the tax code means that it doesn't resonate for some people the same way the minimum wage does but this is a pretty important public policy for many working poor and near poor. I think for that reason, it has broad policy implications. I think you're going to continue to see more policy interventions occurring subnationally. You know, so many of us, and I'm guilty of this sometimes too, I think about policy at the national level. You know, what are we going to do on these different, you know, problems? But there's quite a bit of latitude and autonomy that cities and states can, can exercise, right? So, you know, my hope and expectation is that folks would look to dc and and see this as something that might be worth replicating because i do think it's an effective public policy
0: you also mentioned that not everybody takes this that could right, right. yeah and we're right. not sure exactly how many but uh, that's right but, but it yeah. sounds like nationally upwards of around 20 percent of people i think you said that's right what would your thinking be on how we As a city, if we're not changing the EITC, but we want to get more bang for our buck, how would you think about doing that?
2: Right. I want to latch onto that latter point also. When you think about programs like the EITC, yes, the city is going to be investing resources and folks and spending money, but it's also money that's going to get probably put back into the local and regional economy. These are families that need the resources to pay for a lot of the basics, food, clothing, shelter, things like that. So this is going to circulate. And their benefits there. That notwithstanding you could do the simple stuff in terms of outreach. And I think this is already occurring. You know, you can see on some bus terminals if you drive around, there's stock type ads telling people that this is a refundable credit they should participate in. But I think we can always continue to innovate and think about where we're reaching potential workers. I don't know the degree to which the district reaches out via social media, via these different modalities, right? To say, hey, look, this is something you should go and do. I think, again, continuing to support many of our friends in the nonprofit space who are doing some of this outreach. I know a lot of this does occur through nonprofits, through legal clinics that do tax assistance. So, you know, part of this would be get the knowledge out there that this is a thing. But then second- like many Americans who think about tax preparation, it can feel daunting. It can feel complex. And so are there supports out there to get quick, reliable, trustworthy tax preparation assistance too? So I, I would say continuing to think about that.
0: Are any of these people who aren't taking it, is it potentially people who just decide not to file taxes, so they're not getting into TurboTax or right. whatever, or to a free tax yeah. claim to say, hey, you mm-hmm. you could get $9,000. I would
2: speculate that absolutely there are folks who surmise they don't have a tax burden, and so they don't need to file taxes. And I want to be careful because I think you'd have to look at the ethnographic work on this, and I'm not as familiar there, right? But. I would surmise that that's a hurdle, just getting people to file in the first place, right? And I think I was reading some work, including work by Maggie Jones at the U.S. Census Bureau, showing that on the national scale, we think that EITC participation has been on the order of roughly 80% of folks who would qualify. So that could vary here in the district. And I was talking to a gentleman who said he thought that that was quite a bit lower here in D.C., right? So I do think that'd be a hurdle. And across various forms of government, sometimes there's hurdles to cross with respect to trust. You know, and then private firms have a trust barrier to cross if you want to get people to interact with your business. And you know, I would imagine the same is true with local government, that there are perhaps limited risks associated with filing. right? And again, I know there's other folks who are thinking deeply about this, including at places like D.C. Fiscal Policy Institute. But yeah, that makes sense to me.
1: I think one thing that's really interesting about this program that's working to its advantage is that it's framed and based on you working, right? It's earned. It's right, right in the title yep. versus we have other cash assistance programs, TANF, SNAP, that I would speculate don't have as high an uptake in terms of the pool of eligibility. Right. And so I th- have you thought much about like that yeah. framing and the significance of that?
2: Yeah, I mean, that framing has all sorts of implications. I mean, I think in part, you'll also have people who are very resistant to the notion of thinking about the earned income tax credit alongside food assistance programs. Now, I think that in many circles, these programs are thought of as big primary parts of the social safety net for the working poor, and yet they're quite different. I mean, I think that you do have many people who are now working with food assistance, right? So when you strip out the elderly and the disabled who are unable to work, that is, you find that there's rising work participation with food stamp receipt, right? So I think part of the answer is complicated. We see a lot of people who are working with these benefits at the same time And my own opinion is, unfortunately, a lot of the narrative around poverty in America is that people are poor because they are not or don't want to work. I believe that that narrative is antiquated. We've got a lot of working poor and near poor in America. And so with that said, to your point, Carissa, I do think part of the appeal to the EITC, and I'm generalizing here, is that many people like the built-in aspect of supporting workers, so they're really engaged in the work piece. And then a lot of other people love the idea of supplementing wages. And so you'll get a lot of people who like the policy, maybe for different underlying reasons.
0: So when we're talking about the effect on inequality yeah. for EITC and D.C., how big of an effect are we talking about or an association? Yeah.
2: So in our preliminary results here looking at inequality, you know, we're seeing something on the order of, 13 to 15% reductions in inequality. Interestingly, in some of our estimates, that inequality reduction actually falls to about 10% by the end of the time period. And we're still trying to think hard about why that is. It would certainly be consistent with a scenario where you could improve the level of well-being for an individual while there's still some pulling apart with respect to inequality i.e. the middle of the distribution is actually becoming more and more well-off, more prosperous. So if you're below the middle, if you're kind of working poor or near poor, yes, in absolute terms, this policy is making you better off. But many of the people in D.C. today are doing better several times over. So on an inequality measure, yes, we're reducing inequality, but there's some suggestive evidence more recently that that reducing effect has been diminished a little bit
1: are you able to see in your data how much jumping if you will or bouncing on an individual level is happening over this 13 year period
2: yes and you know you're doing a nod towards what i hope to be one of the next projects so i've done a lot of work in other data sets in the area of income volatility and so this was really an area that I wrote extensively in over the last couple of years. And so thinking about the variability or unpredictability of incomes is something that we, we want to continue to do and, and want to do in the future. So yes, we can. Yes, we should. Maybe that'll be a future podcast. Perfect. I don't know. Yeah.
0: And for your results, do you look at different in different parts of the cities or yes. of the city of the district? Yeah.
2: That's right. It's an interesting question, Sam. And so we do, we look across wards and we try to pool some of the wards together just to really retain some large enough samples to feel fairly confident about what's going on. And with some context geographically to kind of pick areas that make sense. So in one set of inequality results, for example, we examined inequality and specifically focused east of the river in wards seven and eight. So there we find that there's sort of a two-pronged story, the inequality reduction from the EITC appears to be even larger east of the river, where we see the largest numbers of EITC recipients. That's an important fact. This is consistent with the fact that our residents east of the river are more likely to be poor. And so the policy is having some disproportionate impact east of the river. And then if we look in wards 1-6, through we find that One, inequality levels are just generally higher. Two, the inequality reduction is there, and it's meaningful, but it's less. The reduction in absolute terms is diminished in words one through six. And and we think it's consistent with the idea that, again, you could be making people better off with respect to absolute levels, perhaps even less poverty, higher incomes. And at the same time, there's just this pulling apart because the folks in the middle of the distribution in words one through six are just so prosperous.
0: And how are we doing as a district generally on inequality over time? You have a data yeah, set that spans so many years. That's so, right. How does it look for the district? You
2: know, the initial preliminary statistics that we're looking at suggest that with the policies in place, after tax inequality is meaningfully lower after using this federal and DC earned income tax credit. And so the public policies matter. At the same time, there is some evidence of a trend increase in inequality, right? And I think this is consistent with some elements of neighborhood change and transition. The composition of D.C.'s residents is changing. It's becoming a more affluent city. And so that comes with its own challenges and opportunities. I think that, you know, and this is beyond the scope of the paper, but the tax credit for these working poor residents It's helpful, but they still have housing costs they have to grapple with, transportation costs. And that'll continue to be an important issue to keep our eyes on. At once, it's also true, and there was a great chapter in a volume edited by my colleague at American University, Derek Hira. There was a nice chapter by the former CFO. And in that chapter, they kind of talk about the fiscal base for the city and how the fiscal base changed and has evolved. The city... I believe, is able to really engage in some of these creative public policies that cost money because we do have an improved fiscal base, right? So that's the tension. You need those resources in order to do some of these ambitious social policy, labor market policy interventions.
0: Thanks for listening to the Podcast at DC, a production of The Lab at DC. Our producers are Carissa Minnick and Nellie Moore, and our podcast intern is Tim Madden. If you liked what you heard, visit our website at thelab.dc.gov, where you can sign up for our mailing list. You should also follow us on Twitter at thelab_dc. underscore DC. However you choose to connect with us, you can find more information on our work and stay updated on what we're doing. For more episodes of the podcast at DC, subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, I'm Sam Quinney.